Brendan Kiley is the author of five books for young adults. His newest book is his first work of nonfiction. It's called The Other Talk. And the subtitle is Reckoning with Our White Privilege. Brendan, you may know from his Coretta Scott King Honor Award. You may know him from his Walter Dean Myers Award. You may know him from the ALA's Top 10 Best Fiction for Young Adults. You may also just know him because you love his books or your kids love his books where you've taught his books. And we're thrilled that Brendan's joining us in the studio today to tape Poured Over. So glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. There's a really personal backstory to the other talk. And why don't we let readers know what that is? I would say there are two pieces to the the inspiration and the story behind the story. One of the books that I've written, I actually co-wrote. I co-wrote the, the novel All American Boys with Jason Reynolds. And I smile as I say that because I waste no opportunity to be able to say, I love that man. <laughs> and and he and I have spent quite a bit of time together because we, we co-wrote the novel and we traveled the country together talking about some of the subject matter in this book, which, which grapples with racism. Jason Reynolds is a black man from Washington, D.C. Brendan Kiley, I'm a white man from Boston. And we co-wrote a novel to talk about racism from the perspectives of a, a young black boy and a young white boy. And interestingly, as we traveled the country as adults, Jason and I were then experiencing on many levels some of the very moments of racism that we were trying to talk about in the book. And so for me, part of the inspiration behind this book really comes from are some of the intimate conversations that Jason and I had about what it was like for him growing up having conversations about racism with his mother, the the sort of shorthand that I think a lot of folks know it as now is the talk. And I didn't have a talk growing up that asked me to reflect on my own racial identity and what that means for my, my own life, but also how that impacts and interacts with other people's lives. In other words, the other talk, a talk about what it means to, to grow up white. And so Jason and I were talking about this kind of dichotomy, the sort of uh, the absence of a story, an absence of a way to understand your own place in the world. And that was part of what really motivated me to begin to think about what would that other talk be. And so the second piece of inspiration then is, as I begin to reflect on the moments from my own life and think about, well, how would this story relate to then what it meant for me to grow up as a white kid outside of Boston, Massachusetts? How would this story then begin to relate to what it means to grow up as a white kid in the United States. And so for me, the story comes out of that kind of recognition of the kinds of family life that other folks who are not white are often having. Cheryl and Wade Hudson have recently published an anthology called The Talk that talks about myriad talks that families of color sort of forced me to look back at my own life and think about what's the talk that was missing and how can I begin to fill that in? Because as a father of a young toddler who's also a white boy, just like me, I want to try to give him that kind of understanding and language and framework so that he can enter into the conversations about race and racism from a real place of humility, but also empowerment, because he'll have a sense of, well, this is where I come from and this is what it means. So I can enter into this conversation in a way that isn't first led with fear, but maybe one that has a little bit of courage buoyed by humility. Before we really get into this conversation, because there's a lot of ground you and I are going to cover. I do want to talk to you about vocabulary for a second. There are a couple of phrases that you use throughout the book that I think it would be really helpful for some listeners to have explained for them before we start out. So one of the phrases, one of the phrases is global majority. 
I appreciate that because as a former high school teacher, it's really important to put things in context, right? Let's get, a, let's get our defining terms in place here. <laughs> it's, but it's, so I was reading Tiffany Jewell's, this book is anti-racist. And oh, first of all, I wish I had it when I was teaching in the classroom, because I think it's really an incredibly engaging way to talk about a, an uncomfortable subject in a way that can get kids to feel like they have a a place in the conversation. And as I was reading through that book, I noticed the use uh, and the and the defining of the term people of the global majority. And I know that the the sort of uh, school that Tiffany Jewell comes from, the Montessori for Social Justice, many people who are in that group use that term and maybe shorthand as a sort of replacement for what we may say as people of color or BIPOC, but really as a way to maybe get folks like me in particular to recognize that whiteness is not the norm. As much as people like me may grow up thinking that in some way or another, then in fact, 80% of the world are people who are not white. And using a term like the global majority gets away from color, gets away from the designations of race even, and begins to instead position a talk about people in a way that is empowering, the global majority. So I, I felt like it was important for me to use that term too, when I was beginning to think about what are some of the other questions I need to ask myself if I think about how does my racial identity as a white person in the United States affect who I am, who I become, and the access to the, to the community that I have that may be different? Okay, the other word is one that people have a very specific response to. You either got people who understand what you're saying or people who honestly do get a little defensive. But we need to have a conversation about this word, and that word is privilege. Yeah, I really appreciate this question because... I grappled with whether or not I wanted to use that word in the book. And quite frankly, I think it is a shorthand term that is, that is common enough that it felt important for me to use that word in this book, but one that I, I try to wrestle with in the book because I agree. There are so many white folks I know, for example, who are struggling with their access to healthcare. There are so many white folks I know who do not have any privilege in the sense of economic privilege. They may be behind in rent payments. They may be struggling to feed their children. There's a section about hunger in the book that it deeply affects way too many families, regardless of race in our country. And it breaks my heart to think about it. Claudia Rankin uses the term white living. It's not a privilege, right? It's, it's just, this is what it means to live as a white person. And yet I think what is tricky for folks like me to grapple with is that maybe as a white person, I have advantages or access to opportunities that may be called white privilege, as Peggy McIntosh kind of semi-coined in her Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. People have been talking about racial privilege and skin privilege long before Peggy McIntosh walking into a, a drugstore and being able to find Band-Aids that match your skin tone in a way that doesn't make you feel otherized that's what we mean by privilege. It doesn't mean that you make a million dollars a year. It means that your access to comfortability and invitation may be taken for granted. I wish there were another word, but because privilege is the one that we sort of use most commonly, I use that, that term as well. But I really appreciate defining that term because I, I too find it a little bit complicated and, and maybe inappropriate for what we're really trying to talk about. One of the things you make really clear throughout the other talk is that, you know, you're not going to get everything right. Racism is a big subject and it's messy, Yeah. but at least you're trying, which is hard. You're sitting with a lot of discomfort. You are very honest about what you don't know, which yeah. not everyone is willing to do on the page, but you do talk about white people having a racial identity. So mm -hmm. would you talk about what it means 
to live in the world as a white person? I appreciate that the question begins with, I, I know that I'm by far not an expert and two, that I'm, I'm going to be wrong sometimes. <laughs> but I, I do think as part of going back to your first question, last summer in 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, Jason Reynolds and I held a fundraiser for Black Visions Collective in Minneapolis. And we did a, a Zoom talk or a Crowdcast talk, I think it was. And in, in that conversation, he and I were talking about that talk versus no talk thing. And both he and a number of people in the chat were, were sort of chiming in saying, there's a need for this out there in the world for a, a book or some kind of text in which white folks are trying to give it a shot to talk about their racial identity and to talk about how their their own racial identity impacts their lives and the lives of others around them. And I, I say that because I, I think, as Renee Watson has, has called it, a call to action. And so though I know I'm wildly imperfect and going to be wrong, I also hear my friends saying, come on, man, do something. <laughs> like, give it a shot. Just get in there and you're, we're going to make mistakes together. And maybe the next generation will be better off for it because they'll be able to witness some of our mistakes. And so I say all that because when thinking about white racial identity, the first thing that I think about is that I'm taught that it doesn't exist. I grew up outside of Boston and we spent a lot of time on history of our country and the roots of our country and the beginning of the, you know, the, the 13 colonies and the freedom trail and, and all of this stuff, right? And it's, it's, it's kind of shocking to me that in none of that conversation was I asked to address racism in a way that, that asked me questions about, so what does it mean then to come to America and become a white person, right? There's no, there's no white land, there's no white, <laughs> there's no white ethnicity, so to speak. Racial identity in general is a creation. It's a construct. And as the American Association of Anthropological Biologists talk about it, it's really a legacy from colonialism. It's a way to begin to form a nation as they saw fit and a nation that was built for a particular kind of people. And they could use race as a way to begin to create some of the structure and casting, essentially, in our country. That's a heady way of thinking about it. That's a lot. For example, if I'm going to have a conversation with a child in a classroom or a child in my, in my own home, but there's a way to get there by talking about what it means to be white, by having a conversation about George Floyd, for example, and saying, now take, for example, some of my experiences growing up when I interacted with police officers, Brendan Kiley is a white person. In my own life, I've had access to the opportunity of forgiveness. I've had access to the opportunity of people taking pity on me first. I've had access to the opportunity of being given a second chance or, oh, he's probably just a good kid. He didn't mean to make this mistake. Talking about racism in a white family like mine can't only be, look at the terrible thing that happened to George Floyd, can't only be when I was growing up, look at the terrible thing that happened to Rodney King, look at the terrible thing, you know, this list goes on and on and on. It also has to include, well, why is it that it's statistically true that I will most likely have the opportunity to walk away from those kinds of situations safely? That's not disparaging the police. That's not disparaging what it means for me as Brendan Kiley growing up, that I'm a terrible person. It's a way to put into context what white racial identity is. It's a construction to give me more access. And honestly, I think kids understand that. 
And just to wrap up my answer, forgive me for being a little long, but I, I think very much about a Washington Post article that I was reading at the beginning of the summer. And there was a second grader from a town in northern Michigan who was, she was a white girl, second grade. She was talking about what it meant for her to learn about racism um, in second grade. And she said, although it made me sad, it made me want to learn more so that I could do more. And I have goosebumps thinking about a, a, a seven-year-old who has the wherewithal to say that. And it feels to me that that is the response to the call to action that Renee Watson was talking about. This is our chance to have the conversation meaningfully with our families and our children as white folks in a way that maybe is fuller than we have in the past. And that gives us a chance to enter the conversation about racism, maybe a bit more honestly. You talk about this idea of bootstraps. Mm. Every piece of our society has a bootstraps narrative, whether you're a recent immigrant, whether your family has been here for quite some time. Bootstrapping is absolutely part of the American vision. Yeah. Part of bootstrapping it is also part of your family's story and your grandfather's story. And people yeah. who believe very strongly that they have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps when, in fact, a system was created to help bolster them. Yeah. The majority of the beneficiaries of the GI Bill, for instance, after World War II, were white. Yeah. These men were able to educate themselves. They were able to buy homes. They found nice jobs in nice communities and raised their families and sent their kids to very good public schools. Yeah. But not everyone who served in World War II was given access to those benefits. Right. Absolutely. That, as I talk about in the book, I talk about my own grandfather who grew up in an Irish immigrant household. And the story and the narrative of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps is very strong in, in his family and in my family in general. And, and he goes off to World War II and he fights in World War II and he's, he returns home safely. And he is granted access to all those things that you just mentioned in a way that his fellow soldiers of the, of the global majority did not have access to. What that sets up is that as my grandfather and grandmother are building their family and they're, you know, they eventually had six children because he has access to, you know, essentially a higher education for free because he has access to then specialized higher education so that he could study chemistry and plastics. He had access to a higher paying job. It's been well documented that many soldiers of the global majority came home. And even if they tried to access the, the loans that were available through the GI Bill, they were shuttled away from school and not so gently encouraged to take more menial jobs. So two generations later, what does that mean? So my grandfather had access to those loans, had access to a higher paying job, also had access to, hey, come Come live in this neighborhood. We like people like you. You know, we, we want more of people like you. That Irish immigrant is becoming white, right? This is the story of what it means to, to take on that white racial privilege. As he's gaining real estate wealth, he's able to buy another house and, and sort of build up, right? And this is a story that's true for many people in the, the booming post-World War II years. But in particular, it's an ec economic engine for many white families. So what does that mean? It means that my father is able to go to college in the unique way that he did go to college, but essentially not have to pay for it because my grandfather was able to pay for undergrad and college for him and for his five siblings. 
Likewise, that, that means that my father isn't burdened with debt. And when it's my turn to go to college, yes, there were college loans that I took out to go to state school as well, but it was easier for my parents to help pay them off immediately because they weren't saddled with their own debt. This is what intergenerational wealth is all about. And this is what I think you're talking about when you talk about access in a way that the GI Bill provides not just bootstraps, it provided a paved path to walk down. Whereas folks who didn't have that first access to the college loans were not asked to come live in that neighborhood where property values were increasing quickly, or in fact, were specifically told you're not welcome here, and instead are stuck living in places where the property values are decreasing, like inner city, inner city apartments in the 60s and 70s in the United States, or rural homesteads as well, where property values were decreasing as opposed to the lucrative suburbs where property values were increasing. All of this is a counter to that bootstraps narrative. Did my grandfather work hard? Absolutely. Ask any of my aunts and uncles and my dad. Was he home? No, he was working. He was working very hard, right? And it doesn't take away from his hard work to also say he was given a chance that Jason's own family members who fought in the service didn't have access to and had to, in fact, fight their way up towards that same kind of upward mobility and economic mobility in a way that my grandfather didn't have to in the same way. The Kylie family is set up pretty well. You've all gone to college. You've all right. settled into nice lives and starting to build your families and whatnot. And your dad is kind of fascinating to me. I will say your dad <laughs> had a couple of moments in the other talk where I'm like, yeah, okay, go dad. <laughs> he's, he's a pretty remarkable guy. But you also talk about some uncomfortable stuff. And, and we're going to have part of that conversation right now because great Japanese American me is having a moment with 12 year old Brendan Kylie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, yes. I see and, this coming. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a story in the book, which if 12 year old you is feeling Asian mom death stare at the back of his head, there's a reason <laughs> you're feeling that. Right. But I think it's an important moment. It's an important moment because you're talking about bad judgment, which a lot of 12-year-olds have, let's face it. Anyone at 12 is not the most evolved they're ever going to be. Right. But at the same time, we need to talk about your ninja runs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's have that conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I'm i hesitating because <laughs> this is part of what the what writing the book was so kind of strange too, because I, I you know, I'm, I'm diving into these memories and one way I used to tell the story not all that long ago was to play it up for humor in effect, was, right. to, was to tell this kind of a story with a way like, look at the kind of antics we were up to. And, you know, and look how funny this was that we did this. And, and in review, it, it does take on a different context. And, and so I, I, I really I also appreciate the death stares behind my back right now because they're, they're well deserved. I mean, we don't know what we don't know. And so. If we had this conversation in my family before I entered into these ninja runs, which I'll talk about in a second, mm -hmm. maybe they wouldn't have happened in the first place. But second of all, they certainly would have happened differently. And I, I think it's, that's why it's important for us not to be afraid to have these conversations because, again, it, it positions our children to be in a place of empowerment. And so as quickly as I can tell this silly story, a friend of mine used, used to say, to make a long story long, <laughs> like, I'm not going to do that, hopefully, but to, but to say... So here we are, we're a bunch of white tween boys and we're on uh, summer vacation and we're fooling around in one of the houses where we used to hang out. There wasn't parental guidance around. And so of course we like to spend the night there. We could do whatever the heck we wanted. We could drink, you know, two liters of jolt all night and <laughs> bounce off the walls. And we could 
watch as many martial arts movies as we wanted to. And we were fascinated with martial arts. We played all martial arts video games. And so we took it upon ourselves to imagine ourselves as some of the characters that we you know, liked in these movies and in these video games. And we, we dressed up in all black. We put black t-shirts over our head and tied the sleeves around behind. So you could just see through the neck hole and, you know, you just see the eyes, like it was a mask and we'd wear black head to toe and we'd run out into the streets of our neighborhood at night, dressed in all black, calling ourselves ninjas. We made up these quote unquote missions and we would, you know, run around the neighborhood and play ding dong ditch, or we would, you know, move potted flowers around in people's front porches. We even went so far as to move patio furniture from people's backyard decks and rearrange it and put it up on their garage roof in the same arrangement. So like, ah, so clever, right? And we thought we were so funny, but we also had access to, to a remote control. Everybody in our neighborhood had the same Time Warner cable and therefore the same gray Time Warner box and the same gray Time Warner remote control. And we realized if we ran around the neighborhood and aimed that through someone else's window, we could change the channels on them and it would be funny and ha ha ha. Not realizing, though, how much we're scaring people and we're turning the TV on and off. We're doing all kinds of things. And one night, two of my friends went even further and they went around to the back of a, of a house and they dressed in all black, knocked on the window and they scared the older woman who was there, who we thought lived alone in that house. But the two of us who were standing outside the front door underneath the street lamp, like two morons, watched her, I, I don't actually to this day know if it was her son or her grandson come barreling out of the of the front door and he caught us. The point of the story is that, you know, we got caught and eventually we all had to go home and face the, the news from our, our parents. And, you know, nobody ended up calling the police on us because we were caught. So our parents would take care of that. And there was no need for the law, right? This is for white boys who are in their neighborhood. And the, the assumption is, okay, now that we know who it is, the fear is gone and we'll let the families take care of it, which is very different, I think, if it weren't for white boys in a mostly white neighborhood. Because that's one piece of the story that already is worth examining. The second piece is that when I got home and arguing with my father, my father starts to ask me some questions and, and, and I kept fighting back, but it wasn't me. I wasn't the one holding the remote and it wasn't me. I didn't knock on the window and it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And, and he asked me a series of questions that boil down to, but did you stop them? Did you say this was wrong? Did you wear the same costume? Might somebody who is looking out the window assume that you're encouraging these folks on because of the way that you're behaving and laughing and egging them on. In a way, what my father was beginning to talk about was you may not have held the remote, but you're guilty too. And you're guilty by association. And maybe Brendan, what you have to grapple with is that you're accountable to the fear that that woman felt. You're accountable to the nervousness and the minor property damage on around the neighborhood. As I reflect on that, I first of all begin to think about that quite a bit as a story that seems applicable to my own experience growing up as a white person and my own experience being in a classroom, let's say, and though I might not be the one who is saying the racist joke, if I am giggling or remaining silent, it's just like bullying. If a bully is bullying someone and I stand by silently and watch it from the perspective of the person being bullied, I look like a bully too. I look like I'm on the bully's side, to put it in a kid's mind, you know? And oddly, that is reflective of our experience, I think, as white folks in the United States. I might not have caused that violence in particular, but if I stand by silently, it looks too often like I am encouraging that, or it looks too often like I might be 
not as concerned. It's not that big a deal, or it's only a joke, or this shouldn't really concern me. It's not my responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. But what that does is it reinforces the people who are doing the harm to have carte blanche. It reinforces the folks who are who are having the harm done upon them to, to have fewer people who are at their side to say, I, I want to help stop this too. All of that is in the context of something else in this story too, that I feel acutely. <laughs> and I think it's something that someone like me never thought about growing up until I was made to think about it more as an older person. And here we were four white boys who were dressing up and calling ourselves ninjas. Again, this is that kind of thing where people would say, oh, but it's just a costume or, oh, it's just you were just watching those movies and you were infatuated with this kind of sense of how you were imagining a kind of masculinity or whatever it might be, you know, however we might talk about this. But there's a very different sensibility when you appropriate a culture that you know nothing about, especially the white boys in this Boston suburb. We knew nothing about the history of ninjas and the history of where that comes from and why that's so important. And we are, I think, at fault for when we put those costumes on and reduce a culture to a costume, when we meet other folks who are Japanese, when we meet other folks who we then might begin to assume a kind of other cultural sensibility, oh, they're Chinese, they're Korean, or they're from the Philippines. They might have some sense of martial arts in their life or whatever. We're reducing people to a costume. We're reducing people to the tropes that we know from our movies. We're reducing people to not their full sense and their full humanity, but to something in our eyes that's a part of our own entertainment. And I think that it's hard for kids to understand, especially a white kid like me who grew up listening to rap music and mimicking those lyrics when I was in middle school over and over and over again. If I haven't had the conversation about my own racial identity, then I just take for granted that these other things that I'm purchasing and buying through media are for my entertainment. And therefore, the people that I meet who I then begin to think represent that in real life are reduced to that as well. That I think is a real problem, right? If I'm instead asked to address my own racial identity, then I'm forced to ask the question about other folks' racial identities as well and begin to think of them as a full human being as I do myself. And I think that that question of cultural appropriation is tied to that sense of accountability that my father was saying when he said, you may not have been the one holding the remote, but you're still accountable to this woman's fear. You're a former high school teacher and you still spend a lot of time on the road or in this case on Zoom talking to students around the country and everything from middle grade up through college. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking to a wide range of kids and I know you get a lot of questions, but I want to go through a little exercise here with a former teacher, current current educator. What do you say to someone who says... I can't be racist. I have a black friend or an Asian friend or a Latin friend, or I don't see color. I also grew up in Massachusetts. That's something you hear quite a lot in Massachusetts. I don't see color. How do we have this conversation with the folks who don't believe they're part of the situation? I think the first question that I would ask a person is, what are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Because as much as I might want to say I don't see color, I've heard too many folks of the global majority talk about their experiences from a perspective of feeling as if they're seen <laughs> having color. And so the first question I think is really about listening. I can't be a racist because I have a black friend or a Korean American friend or whatever the fill in the blank there for that 
that response, I think my first question might really be, what do they have to say? <laughs> and, you know, again, I, I go back to your first question about some of the inspiration for the book. And as I mentioned, you know, the kind of call to action in, in some ways that I feel like I heard, part of it is that I, I feel like I, I want to have authentic relationships with people in my life. I want to have real relationships where I give people space to be vulnerable so that I too can have the space to be vulnerable. We can be real with each other. I think it's an avoidance if we say I can't be racist or I don't see color. Why not just not worry about whether or not you're racist, <laughs> not worry about whether or not you seeing someone who is not from your same cultural background and instead just listen to what folks are saying when we're in conversation with them. Just listen to or pay attention to how folks are reacting in the room. You know, read the room. Instead of projecting what I want to be the case, taking a step back and allowing the opportunity to learn what may actually be the case from people whose experience I could have a lot to learn from. Let's not worry about the conversation about whether you're racist or not. There's an academic answer to that that we can get to later, and I'd love to. But first, let's just talk about, well, what are people in our community saying? Or let's say I, I'm, I'm in a community where there aren't a lot of folks of color or people of the global majority, and I don't actually get the chance to listen very often. Am I taking the time to make sure that the TV shows, the movies, the books I read, et cetera, are filling me with perspectives that are different than my own cultural background. Because if I'm doing that and I'm filling my consciousness as much as possible, listening as best I can in whatever situation I can, there may be an opportunity to learn more about why someone might say I am racist. There's another piece of that question too. When someone says, but I was only trying to help or I didn't mean it that way. Yeah. Or that's not what I said, or I didn't say that someone else said it. Yeah. What do we say then? I think it's really important to understand that there's a difference between intentions and actions. And in the same way that the, maybe the poet's answer to my attempt at answering your last question was, it's all about listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> as opposed to the prose verbose answers that I give. But maybe the answer here is, is again, another kind of listening, because it's one thing to say, I didn't mean to, it's another thing to hear a person say, well, it still hurt. And when I was a teacher, a colleague uh, and a friend of mine who's also white, we went to the White Privilege Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And there was a, a workshop in which uh, the workshop leaders were sort of setting up this mock racetrack. And they were trying to talk about the answer to the question earlier about privilege being, you know, not about privilege as we think about it economically, but about access to opportunity. So they set up this sort of trial and they were having people stand according to, you know, racial identity and who got a head start and, and whatnot. And, and the, the whole exercise did not include the experience of being indigenous in the United States. There was no marker for what does it mean to be an indigenous person in the United States? And this is at a conference that was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, whose sort of framework and thematic structure for the multi-day conference was to really bring the local experience of Navajo and Apache and Laguna Pueblo and, and Pueblo nations into the space. And this, this is really important, right, to think about what's missing. And a, a woman stood up in the workshop and she, she's an indigenous woman and she, she stood up and she, she essentially was, was asking, where am I? Once again, I've been rendered invisible. Even in this workshop, I've been rendered invisible. And my white 
colleague and I were grappling with what to do. And here we are with good intentions. I mean to do something really important. I want to show I'm an ally. I want to show I'm doing the right thing. I want to show I care. And we were talking with each other and, we, and the idea was, let's get up and let the people who who led this workshop know that we're we're walking out in protest and we we stand with the woman who who just stood up and said she was invisible we stand with her by getting up and walking away <laughs> and i i say that to to make fun of us because we stood up and my friend made her short speech about why we were leaving and the the woman who initially stood up the woman who had been erased turned around and said no that's what you always do you walk away stay here listen be here with us process this with us it's going to feel uncomfortable, she's saying in so many words, right? But sit here in this uncomfort with me. I'm uncomfortable. And I had to stand up to let everyone know that. You may have thought you were doing something powerful and helpful, but in, instead, you're doing what you can do, which is you can escape. You can say, I did a thing and now I'm gone. I did a thing today at school and now I'm back home and I'm playing video games and I don't think about it anymore. That kind of wanting to do good, but not wanting to have to sit and listen is part of the erasure, is part of the making someone feel scared as the old woman in the house <laughs> and not taking on some of the accountability for the fear and the uncomfortability that I might cause too. So I really appreciate your question because I think it's good to want to do something helpful. <laughs> I mean, I'm not taking away from that. Like, let's have compassion and care and a sense of community. Let's not be afraid of that. Let's, let's do that. But maybe what it requires is, again, taking time to act alongside people who have already been acting for a long time. Maybe it's, I want to do something, but I want to listen to folks who have been acting in my community and learn from them and ask, what can I do to help? As opposed to swooping in there and saying, look what I did, you know, in this kind of, I joke when I'm in the classroom, right? Like I put my hands on my hips and I pretend the cape is flowing behind me. And it's like, I'm super Brendan. And it's, of course I'm not, of course not. And I think to, to act in that way is not only harmful and disrespectful, but I'm deluding myself. Because what am I doing if I think I'm doing an action to help folks if I'm not actually recognizing who the people are in the room? This information is something that we're all challenged by right now. There are multiple channels online where people are finding information from their peers, from their grownups. Disinformation is a problem for us as a culture and a society right now. How do we start to better combat disinformation? I'm uh, terrified, to be quite honest, about the effects of disinformation on our lives, and especially for young folks, because their access to information and media is just so much greater than anything I could have comprehended when I was their age. And even as a teacher in the high school classroom, you know, just a few years ago, racing to keep pace with the information that I was trying to get folks to wrestle with in the classroom versus what was available with a few taps on their phone before I'd finished the sentence. <laughs> and, and so I, I really appreciate this question because I think it's something that we all have to take um, into consideration. And if I'm talking about this book, The Other Talk, and I'm talking about the kind of family conversation that I want to have, I think first and foremost, one of the ways to combat disinformation is to think about what we prioritize as a very common conversation in the household. It's going to be impossible for me to isolate my child away from sources of media that continually pump out conspiracy theories. He's going to have access to that at some point, probably much sooner than I'm way comfortable with. And yet, if I am at the dinner table each night 
making sure that I'm having conversations that are relevant to the values of let's lay bare as honestly as possible what racism looks like in, the, in our country. And let's make sure that we're talking about that in relationship to our own racial identity as white people. If that's as common as the way we thank the person who cooked the meal that night, <laughs> as common as the conversations about what did you do in school today, it becomes a, a foundational conversation. And I think that provides a bit of a buffer from disinformation because different information then becomes questionable. But if we avoid the conversation and don't have any conversations, then the disinformation becomes possibly what's most common. And that's what's so terrifying to me. And that's why shying away from, oh, I'm not a racist or, oh, I don't see color. Shying away from the conversation potentially is even more dangerous for everybody in the community and in my own family for my own white child. It's important to continue to talk about looking at other sources and, and, and all of that. And hopefully people are doing that in school. But first and foremost, I have to create the values by making them transparent. If I want a household where my child cares about trying to undo some of the damage of racism, which I, I think, I mean, there are studies out there right now, 71% of, of white Americans think racism is a problem in America. Well, if 71% of us make it a priority to talk about it at the dinner table and talk about our own white, white racial identity at the dinner table, I have to feel like there will be some something different will happen because it hasn't happened yet. And so I think that's that's part of combating the disinformation. You spend a lot of time around kids of all ages. What have they taught you? I feel like one of the most amazing, rewarding, gratifying, and shocking <laughs> experiences of being a, an author of young adult books is the opportunity that you know, some of us have to travel and speak to kids all across the country. And I've had the unbelievable fortune to talk to kids in Anchorage, Alaska, Orlando, Florida, Portland, Maine, Sacramento, California, and all points in between in cities, in, in rural communities, in exurbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting to me to think about how often I've heard kids ask questions just like that second grader in Northern Michigan. I want to learn more. What can I do? I think about how I grew up in a much more provincial kind of lifestyle than our young folks are today. I met a young person in Sacramento, California, who wanted to connect with kids all across the country and do a coordinated Black Lives Matter march. It was really important to her. And she really wanted to talk about this. And she wanted to talk about it with people elsewhere in the country. And she could do that because of her access to social media and being interconnected to people all across the country in a way that I never was and is potentially empowering, right? Kids who marched for gun safety all across the country didn't only have to be from Parkland, Florida. Kids all across the country cared about their own future and the future of young people of their generation all across the country. I feel like I keep seeing this over and over again. In Anchorage, Alaska, I went to one of the most diverse high schools in the United States, which I was ignorant of that. I, I walked in and as, the, as they, they told me that fact, I thought, really? In Anchorage, Alaska? Wow, I'm shocked, blah, blah, blah. Part of that is because I was just ignorant. I didn't understand the larger context. And the young folks there could be proud of that context and teach me why I was ignorant and why I didn't know what I didn't know and the assumptions that I had, right? The young folks today are potentially more connected and more united, in fact, in our country than many of us adults feel. And that gives me so much hope. 
that's what I feel like I'm learning from the young folks is that they care and they want to do something. I can't tell you how many times I feel like I've heard young people say, I feel inspired. I've read this book. I care more now because I care about these characters, whether it's Dear Martin by Nick Stone or Love is a Revolution by Renee Watson, you know, whatever the case may be, the, the list goes on and on. The, the students feel the stories that the characters are going through and they feel motivated to be connected to the, the larger issues of our day because they feel that they're personal to them. They want to be involved. That's what I'm hearing from kids all across the country. And that's why I do what I do, because I just want to be with them, learn from them as much as possible, be reminded how I'm an old, ignorant man. <laughs> and, and I have another example just, just off the top of my head that I think is really exciting too. I was talking about some of the connections between race and racism and how I didn't have enough conversations about it to make me reflect on my own experiences growing up. And also talking about how I didn't reflect enough at growing up on what it meant to grow up as a boy and to grow up with my images of what it meant to become a man. And that's reflective of two of my novels, the one that I co-wrote with Jason, All American Boys, and also another book, uh, Tradition. And I was talking at a high school in New Jersey, and there was a student who stood up at the end of one of my presentations and said, you know, you've talked a lot about your coming to terms with not understanding race as much as you wish you had growing up and not understanding toxic masculinity as much as you, you had growing up but I don't hear you talking at all about the transgender experience. I don't hear you really comfortable using the language of, of plural pronouns. You, you haven't even mentioned your own pronouns. And here I am, the student is calling me out. Here's an opportunity that's just like that. I'm not a racist. I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, right? I could have doubled down on my, but look what I'm talking about. Look how, you know, look how uh, enlightened I am or blah, 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 you know, throwing that in huge air quotes because I don't think of myself that way at all. But instead, by taking the opportunity to listen to what that student had to share, and then the fortune of the assembly broke up and I could talk to the student one-on-one -on -one and I could say, you know what, you're absolutely right. How could I do a better job and how can I incorporate this issue that you care about so much that isn't even really an issue, it's a part of your life. How can I incorporate a part of your story into the way that I'll tell stories and hold events later down the road. I'm learning from students all the time. They're teaching us. Let's just listen to them. They care. <laughs> it seems like a really good place to wrap this interview. Brendan Kiley, thank you so much. The new book is The Other Talk. It is out now. Thank you. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.